the mayor greeted them with, you have strange ideas of hospitality. He pointed his pole at Deacon. He invited us to ruin our digestive tracts with alcohol. It's a Terran custom, explained the ambassador, taken aback. I don't doubt that, responded the mayor, accepting that Terrans were capable of any iniquity. If it pleases you to degenerate into hopeless sots, that is wholly your own affair. But don't expect us to join you in such depravity. There is only one drink fit for a healthy mind in a healthy body. He turned to his counselors. And what is that? Pure, clear water, they chorused. You should examine water through a powerful microscope, the ambassador suggested. It looks like germ soup. Probably it does, on terror, agreed the mayor. And if this ship's tanks are full of the stuff you're welcome to it. He dismissed the unpleasant subject with a gesture, went on. Have you reached a decision? What do you want me to tell our government? We accept their offer. And how soon will you be ready to disembark the men and equipment? We'll have to transfer the ship to the island or somewhere adjacent providing there's a suitable landing place in that locality. We can't dump it anywhere because we can sit only on solid bedrock. The island won't do. It has woods, gardens and cultivated fields. Also a number of buildings including an excellent gymnasium. That's what your men could really do with a gymnasium, isn't it? Maybe. Landing a vessel this size would create a lot of unnecessary destruction, the mayor asserted. As for the areas on either side of the sandbar, they are soft earth and full of farms. I think it would be easiest to discharge your men and supplies right here. And how will they get to the island, inquired the ambassador. We'll provide horse transport for all the heavy stuff. The men themselves can walk. Walk, echoed the ambassador. Walk, exclaimed Shelton as if he'd never heard of such a thing. A three days march won't kill them, the mayor said. They can't be all that feeble. The ambassador appealed to Grader. Couldn't we use one or two of the ship's lifeboats? No, your excellency. Why not? They aren't designed for short hops. This is a nice fix. We bring men thousands of millions of miles in the very latest type of superfast spaceship and then expect them to go the rest of the way on their feet. What are feet for? asked the mayor. Unable to concoct a telling reply to that question, the ambassador evaded it by saying, all right. We'll unload our men and supplies here. Can you have them read V early tomorrow morning? I suppose so. Why? We'll cut a track through the fields and have a horse and sea art convoy up the hill by that time. It would be best to start the journey as soon as possible so that the travelers will have a full day ahead of them. Chronic drinkers and smokers will totter along at only half our pace. You don't know my space troopers, interjected Shelton with some annoyance. Let it pass, Colonel, ordered the ambassador. Then to the mayor, we'll be ready in the morning. Then I'll inform the government and make the necessary preparations. Lieutenant Deacon led the party out. At the bottom of the gangway there was the usual parade while Gurpongo went through his delousing act. For some time the ambassador stood by an observation port watching their progress until they emerged from the fields and onto the road. I have a feeling, he said, that those raw boys are eager to be rid of us. The sooner we depart for the next planet the better they'll like it. Maybe they're planning to cut every Terran throat the moment we've gone, hazarded Shelton.
Nonsense, Colonel. They have everything to gain and nothing to lose by keeping their side of the bargain. Then why should they want us out of the way? The motive is psychological, said the ambassador, looking profound. They don't mind having some of our men around, especially since they can point to them as an inferior species. But they don't like the presence of this ship. It's a symbol of power. They can exhibit nothing to compete with it. They have no ships themselves and they'll be glad to see the last of this one. It won't break my heart to part, either, Shelton assured. I've had enough of nudity and impertinence. Taking a small book from his pocket the ambassador consulted it. I have available three consuls each with a staff of twenty civil servants. Maybe I had better ask whether any one of them would like this post on Hygieia. I don't want to start giving orders unless I have to. A volunteer is better than a conscript. My instructions are that the bodyguard must also be chosen on a voluntary basis, informed Shelton disapprovingly. What's wrong with that? Regulations demand that a consular bodyguard shall be of not less than company strength, two officers, eight NCOs and forty men. Where am I if less than that number offer to go? You'll have to cajole them somehow. With all respect, your excellency, a commanding officer does not cajole his subordinates. Well, convince the reluctant ones that the alternative will be prolonged suffering at your hands. You then get more men than you need. Bidworthy is the man to handle it, said Shelton. I'll pass it to him, that's what he's for. He hustled away in search of that character. An hour later Bidworthy paraded D Company in the troops' quarters. Standing aggressively before them, he examined them with a jaundiced eye, cleared his throat and gave forth in manner that brooks no argument. A bodyguard is required for the Terran consul about to be placed on this planet. The following men have volunteered, Abelson, Adams, Alcock, Baker, Barker, Bunting. In the same tone of voice he ran right through D Company's roster to the last man, then barked, all you volunteers will parade in. Full kit outside the Midway airlock at eight hours tomorrow. Any absentees will be charged with mutinous conduct and dealt with accordingly. That done, he sprayed them with a challenging glare. In spite of this, Trooper Jensen took one step forward and spoke nervously. Your pardon, Sergeant Major, but I didn't give my name F-99, what, shouted Bidworthy. What do you mean? He waved his list in Jensen's face. It's down, here, isn't it? I suppose so, Sergeant Major, Jensen faltered. You suppose so? You actually suppose so? Do you dare to doubt my word? Straightening the paper with a jerk, he held it before the other's eyes, pointed with a thick finger. Whose name is mine, admitted Jensen. Then it's on the fist. You can't volunteer one minute and de-volunteer the next. But, Sergeant Major, silence. If you don't know your own mind I'm the man to make it up for you. He added with menace thick enough to hang in the air like smoke, you wouldn't care for your name to appear on some other list, would you? No, Sergeant Major, said Jensen, suddenly leery. He took a pace back into the ranks and brooded. Anyone else want to quibble, asked Bidworthy, ready to summon a firing squad. Nobody responded. Right, eight hours, full kit. He clanked away on steel shod boots, entered the chartreum, saluted. I have to report, sir, that D Company volunteered to a man. Did they really, said Shelton, proud and gratified. That's fine. Thank you, Sergeant Major. It had to be admitted that within the peculiar limits 
The Hygians were fast-moving and efficient. A bunch of them worked in the night and cut a path eight feet wide through the standing grain. Soon after dawn a dozen horses and carts appeared, trundled creakily to the top of the ridge and lined up near the gangway. With them came twelve over knot. Muscled public guardians and one sharp-nosed, shrewd-eyed character who wore a pair of ornamental garters above his knees. This last person had himself taken to the chartroom where he gave forth with official formality. Health be yours. Thank you, said the ambassador, staring fascinated L.Y. at the garters. I am Smale of the ministry. Digging some papers out of his shoulder bag, he put them on the desk. I have brought two documentary copies of the agreement negotiated by Mayor Bouchon. We have signed and now require your signature. Also, right, the ambassador felt for his pen. I have been told to draw to your attention an extra clause that we have decided to include, Smale added. Picking up a copy, he read it aloud. The Terran consul upon this planet shall be regarded as his world's representative to the whole of Hygieia and not to any specific part thereof. What does that mean? asked the ambassador suspiciously. If the dukes want to dicker with you Terrans they must do so through us. You may not appoint another representative specifically for them. They have no government anyway. They don't recognize anyone's authority except in so far as it suits them to do so. Ours is the only established government upon Hygieia. You must deal with us and with nobody else. After some thought, the ambassador said, I see nothing wrong with that. There's no point in us taking up with a small, unorganized group of pious anarchists. He signed the agreement with a flourish, handed back one. Copy. Smale carefully put it in his bag, spoke again. Do your men intend to travel clothed or unclothed? Why, the shortest route to their destination lies through two towns and eight large villages. If your men insist upon keeping themselves covered they'll have to bypass those places and add 15 to 20 miles to their journey. We cannot permit a parade of blatant immoralities through our centers of population. Some people will see them no matter which way they go, the ambassador pointed out. Yaz, unfortunately, admitted Smale, and they will be offended by a procession of the filthy-minded. Can't you persuade them to undress and at least look decent? No, I can't. The consul has flatly refused to accept his post if he has to go to it naked. I talked him into it only by prom not. Ising that he can wear what he pleases. The same applies to the whole of his staff. If their idea of high diplomacy is to advertise their lewdness for all to see, a pint smell, they won't make much progress on this world. But I suppose that even the most do not. Praved of Terence is not beyond reform. Given enough time we may cure them, I hope. There's room for it, conceded the ambassador, thinking of the chosen consul who was a tall, weedy sample with a red-tipped nose and a perpetual snuffle. He waited until Smale had departed, then said to the others, they seem touchy about these doohobbers in spite of the fact that they're few in numbers. It's evident that they regard them as as unmitigated nuisance. I must emphasize this in May report to Terra. A time may come when we'll find it very convenient to rush to the rescue of an oppressed minority. Think we should try to make contact with the Dukes while we're here. Shelton suggested, the idea is tempting but I don't think it wise. It might spoil the present setup.
We'll save them until we need them as an excuse for something or other. Such as prompted grader. Well, if at later date Terra finds it expedient to become rough with these hygienes we can use the dukes as some sort of justification. At immense cost and great sacrifice we shall be liberating them from cruel masters. You must remember, my dear captain, that whatever Terra sees fit to do is in very not. Ably done from the loftiest of motives. There is nothing materialistic or sordid about our space policy. It is born of far-sighted wisdom, high ideals and spiritual values. Isn't that so, Colonel? Yaz, said Shelton absent-mindedly. A linguist, commented the ambassador. Three days and he speaks the local language with complete fluency. Hey, what's that, your excellency, asked Shelton, waking up. Forget it. Let us go and witness our first memorable step towards claiming an empire. He left the room, the others following. They reached the airlock, stood at the top of the gangway and looked down. Already the carts were loaded. The first four bore the parts of two long-range transmitters. The fifths held the smaller and lighter receivers. All the components of a big antenna were in the sixth. A small atomic engine and a large generator occupied the seventh and eighth. The remaining four were piled high with personal luggage plus a generous stock of health-ruining alcohol and tobacco. Near the bottom of the gangway a disillusioned-looking civil servant was chain-smoking with more speed than enthusiasm. Nearby two public guardians and one cart driver showed unconcealed revulsion. The smoker let go a racking cough, the onlookers exchanged a glance of mutual under knot. Standing, the smoker coughed again and the others backed away hastily. Farther out D Company stood in three ranks burdened to the ears with arms and equipment. Not one man showed any sign of giving way to transports of delight. They posed in glum silence, each bent forward with the weight of stuff on his chest. And back, Bidworthy marched slowly along the lines, inspecting them front and rear. It was his last chance to remind this particular bunch that their parents had made a ghastly mistake. He knew it and they knew it. But he was seriously handicapped by two facts. Firstly, the top brass was watching and, secondly, there was no way of ordering punishment for an offender soon to depart. In the middle of the rear rank he came to a dead stop and stared at Trooper Bunting. The object of his attention was blissfully unaware of this scrutiny because nothing was visible save the pair of boots immediately in front of him. As burdened as a Christmas tree, Trooper Bunting was wearing a size 10 helmet on a size 7 head with the inevitable result that it appeared to rest on his shoulders. Surveying this apparition with slowly purpling face, Bidworthy let his gaze drift to the next man and there found the opposite effect. Trooper Veach had a size 7 helmet perched like a pimple on top of a size 10 cranium. Veach fidgeted uneasily, he knew that he was about to be picked on but for the life of him could not imagine why. Veach, said Bidworthy in strangled tones. Yes, Sergeant Major, are you composmentus? How's that again, Sergeant Major? Is that your own helmet? I think somebody squashed it a bit, Sergeant Major, explained Veach apologetically. A lot of stuff got tossed around when the ship don't give me that, yelled Bidworthy. He snatched the two helmets, swapped them around, slapped them back on the others' heads. Both fitted. Bunting was vaguely surprised, Veach astonished. 
when they inducted you two dopes, declared Bidworthy in clarion tones, they were scraping the bottom of the barrel. Snorting like an angry warhorse, he tramped to the front, halted before the officer in command of D Company, saluted and rasped, all present and correct, T greater than sir. Now the cart started forward and lumbered down the slope with brake block squeaking. The consul and his staff straggled behind without rhythm or array as is customary with civilians. D Company slung weapons from shoulders, started a precise march made difficult by the slow pace of those ahead. Of them, a funereal tread more suitable for following a coffin with a flag over it. A torrent of fond farewells rained upon them from the ship's open ports. Where's the body? Hey, Markovich, you've left your pants on. Give em hell, boys. Bellies in, chests out, come on, smarten up, you bums. Onward, Christian soldiers. Silence, roared Bidworthy. Ain't nobody here named Silas, informed a voice from the ship. Who's that? Bidworthy yelled, trying to survey two hundred ports at once. Who dat say, who dat, responded the voice mockingly. Is you where you is or is you ain't? Bidworthy made a vengeful dash for the gangway, raced up it, shod through the airlock with a brief, pardon me, colonel, and disappeared into the ship. Look out, warned another voice. The bull has broken loose. Grader remarked meditatively, discipline is the thing. Shelton said nothing. When the last of the cavalcade had ambled from sight the ambassador said, that's that. He returned with the others to the lounge, poured himself a generous drink, sprawled in a chair. We have now a foothold on Hygieia. It is terrors re not. Sponsibility to enlarge and strengthen it as time goes on. Yes, your excellency, said Shelton. I'll make out an official report describing what has been done. Will you have it transmitted as swiftly as possible, captain? Certainly, your excellency, assured Grader. Good, he sipped his drink, went on, now that this job is finished we might as well push on to the next one. I know of no irresistible attractions that make it worth our while to remain here. We have nothing to gain by hanging around. What do you SNY? I'll have to see first mate Morgan before we can go. Morgan, why, what has he got to do with it? He is not in charge of this ship. The men are entitled to liberty. I cannot deprive them of that right without their consent. Morgan organizes the rosters. And only he can tell me whether the men are willing to go on or whether they insist on taking their leave in full. The ambassador pulled a face. All right, you consult him. Tell him we want to depart as soon as possible. Grader phoned for Morgan and when he arrived said, Mr. Morgan, we plan to boost away just as soon as the men are ready. What is the position with regard to their liberty? Not so good, sir. The fellows want lots of life, female. Company and fun. They aren't getting it. Some refuse to exhibit themselves naked. Those who are willing to undress have found that they aren't allowed in town. That leaves them with nothing to do except lie in the grass or mooch around the fields. I think most of them are pretty fed up. They may be luckier next time, Grader suggested. It's hardly likely that yet another planet will view us as vermin. No, sir, agreed Morgan, frowning. See the men and put it to them, ordered Grader. Let me know as soon as you can whether they are willing to forego their remaining leave for the sake of getting someplace better. It was two hours before Morgan returned with the news. All the fellows I can find, sir, are in favor of leaving this world and trying the next one. 
but a party of ten had left for a walk to the forest and said they wouldn't be back before late in the afternoon. Why have they gone there? asked Grader. Just for the stroll. That's right, sir. They said they didn't think any big, fat cops would be waiting to heave them out of the woods. Sergeant Gleed's squad is also absent, sir. He marched them away to a nearby farm about an hour ago. What for? put in Shelton suspiciously. 10th Engineer Harrison tells me that Sergeant Gleed got talking to two local nudies named Boogie and Pincuff who were working in the fields this morning. He fed them a story about how we'd lacked a balanced diet since birth and how the terrace and authorities kept us in subjection by depriving us of nourishment. Morgan showed the embarrassment of one not sure whether he was being sneaky. He complimented them repeatedly on their magnificent manhood, made a number of envious remarks about their physique and finally catched from them two cartloads of fresh vegetables and fruit. He's taken his squad to help load up. Shelton clapped a hand to his forehead. A space trooper panhandling like a hobo. A sergeant behaving like a whining mendicant. A sergeant of all people. He should be a lieutenant at least, opined the ambassador. Smacking his lips as thought of fruit and fresh vegetables. I'll have him on the carpet for this, swore Shelton. I'll know you won't, the ambassador contradicted. We cannot share the loot without condoning the crime. And I intend to share the loot. But, your excellency, discipline. Discipline my fanny, said the ambassador rudely. Fruit is really something. I am more than tired of dog food out of a can. For what we are about to receive may the Lord make us truly thankful. He brightened as another thought struck him and added, if a sergeant can catch two cartloads a colonel should be able to get ten. I would not demean myself by telling lies to the natives, declared Shelton. Not even for a big, beautiful melon all to yourself. Positively not. Then it's a good thing we've got sergeants, said the ambassador. Grader ended the discussion with Mr. Morgan, we'll leave when the last man has returned. Advise me immediately the role is complete. Very well, sir. By eventide everyone was aboard. So also were the fresh vegetables and fruit. Bidworthy caught the load going through the airlock, goggled as six sacks of rosy apples were lugged past him. Sergeant Gleed, where did you procure all this stuff? From that farm over there, Sergeant Major. With the farmer's knowledge and consent. Good heavens, Sergeant Major, said Gleed, wounded to the soul, you don't think we'd rob the place during his absence, do you? I have been in the space service for twenty-five years. Informed Bidworthy, which is plenty long enough to teach me that the only crime is that of being found out. He put on a look of deep cunning. All right, Gleed, how much did you pay this farmer and with what did you pay him? I didn't give him anything. You persuaded him to donate two cartloads of fresh food. That's right. For nothing. That's right. He was fascinated by your personal charm, I suppose. That's right, said Gleed with equanimity. You're a liar, stated Bidworthy. And you know you're a liar. Furthermore, you know that I know you're a liar. He challenged the other with his eyes. Don't you? Yes, Sergeant Major, said Gleed. I am now going to check weapons and stores, announced Bidworthy. If I find any gaps where you have swapped government material for this dollop of fodder you may expect the balloon to go up. The colonel will tear off your stripes with his own two hands. So saying, he dipped fingers into a passing sack, took out 
the crimson, juicy apple half the size of his head, and clanked away. An hour later the gangway was drawn in. The airlock closed, the warning sirens sounded and the ship lifted. Trooper Casartelli gazed wistfully through an observation port as the planet shrank beneath. Man, he enthused, that world has most everything, good, solid earth, sunshine, clear air, fruit and flowers. Also several millions of luscious pin-ups wearing nothing but the glorious hair. An Eden crammed with wonderful eaves. I didn't see any, said Trooper O'Keefe. Did you? No, unfortunately. But they're there, man, they're there. He gave a deep sigh. Those fellows in D Company were bomb lucky. Trooper Yarrow put in with malice, I didn't notice you falling over yourself in your haste to volunteer. Ruthless Rufus didn't give me the chance. Ha ha, said Yarrow skeptically. Anyway, if I had offered my name he'd have turned me down dead flat. You know what he's like. He can smell a rat where there isn't one. Maybe it's just as well, opined Yarrow. The hygiene lovelies will fall only for a healthy mind in a healthy body. You've got neither. Speak for yourself, emaciated, snapped Casartelli. He remained watching through the port while Hygieia diminished to a tiny half-moon barely discernible alongside a blazing sun. Then he pussyfooted along to Bidithi's little cabin and swiped that person's apple.